Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Okay, hi everybody. Um, it's good to be able to speak to you this morning. Um, you may know that we're heading towards the end of a series that we've been looking at over the summer. We've been looking at the book of Acts, or the first few chapters, and actually next week Owen is going to conclude that series for us, looking at chapter 7. Um, so today we're the second part of chapter 6. But when I looked at the passage that I had to speak from, there's eight or so verses, there's not a huge amount that I particularly want to talk about today from those verses. The verses I think that very much lead into what Owen will share with us next week. So instead of just speaking for two minutes and you feeling maybe a bit short-changed, I thought what I would do is I would give you some of my highlights of this series, looking at chapter one all the way through to where we've got to so far in chapter six. I'm aware over the summer, some of us are away on holiday, we don't manage to get to every Sunday service and there might be some things that you've missed out on. And I just thought, well, as I was looking at these chapters again this week, there were a few things that really stood out to me and I thought, well, let's share those things and then I might finish with those few verses in chapter 6 at the end if we have time. So if you've got a Bible, now's a good time to grab it because you'll be sort of flicking pages. Um, And then what I'll do before we go any further is I'll just pray. Lord, I do pray that you will continue to speak to us through your spirit this morning. As you've spoken to us through contributions in our time of worship, as you've been with us, as we have worshipped, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you'll continue to speak to us now that we will see something in these scriptures, even ones we have read just a few weeks before. We will see something again of how wonderful you are and what you have called us to do. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, I'll just quickly a mouth of water, but some very, very quick basics. Who wrote the book of Acts? Hmm. So Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote Luke's Gospels. It's the same Luke. He actually addresses both of them to the same person. So in the opening chapters of both, he addresses his writings to Theophilus. We don't know too much about him, but we know that Luke wrote both of his accounts to that guy called Theophilus. Um, What we do see in Acts chapter 1, though, is some of the purpose for what he's writing. So in the first sentence of Acts chapter 1, he says that the previous book, i.e. the gospel accounts, that was what Jesus began to do and teach. He says what Jesus began to do and teach... And so the inference or the implication is then that the book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do and teach. Does that make sense? The gospel, what Jesus began to do and teach, and the inference then that this book, the book of Acts, is what Jesus continues to do and teach. But if you've got one of the older translations, you might have a different name for the book of Acts in your Bible. Yours might be called the Acts of the Apostles. And that makes us think, well, is this because the book is really about the Apostles? Luke's kind of implying that actually it's about Jesus, what he continued to do and teach, but my version sort of gives the idea that it's actually about the apostles, the disciples. And when you think that Jesus then ascends to heaven partly through chapter 1, and is not actually on the scene physically for the rest of the book, you might also think, why is Luke saying that this is a book about what Jesus continued to do and teach? It's a bit puzzling. But actually the answer is quite straightforward. It's in chapter 2 and onwards that Jesus pours out his spirit to his people, to his followers. So it's in that sense, his Holy Spirit enabling his apostles to do what they did, it's in that sense that we can say, this is a book, but what Jesus continued to do and teach. 
Okay? Now, a very long-winded name might not be that easy to kind of remember, but you could say that this is a book, the Acts of the Ascended King Jesus, working through his apostles by the power of his Spirit. It's a bit of a mouthful, so it's easier just to say Acts, but that's what's going on in this book, okay? Now, you might think then, okay, well, that sort of makes sense. So if Jesus is really orchestrating what's going on through his spirit, are the apostles just merely puppets on the end of a string? Have they got any say in what's going on? What's their involvement all about? Or is this just Jesus kind of like someone with yeah, puppets on the end of a string just playing things out? Well, there's definitely a mystery in the sovereignty of God and how we fit in with that. I'm not going to talk about that today. That's a big topic. But what Luke does in his writings from chapter 1 all the way through is makes it very clear that these are men and women who get involved, who are actively involved in the purposes of God. They're certainly not passive and just puppets on the end of a string. And I hope that what we'll see is this is what happens, these stories that we'll see in these first few chapters, this is what happens when God's people, men and women, are faithful and obedient to the Holy Spirit's leading. So as the Holy Spirit leads these men and women, they get involved They take responsibility and we start to see amazing things happening. And I hope it whets your appetite for what God can do for you and for me and for our church as the Holy Holy Spirit leads us and we decide, I'm going to be faithful to what he asks me to do and obedient to what he asks me to do. I hope it whets your appetite. There are some amazing things as we'll see. So get your book in front of you, get your Bible in front of you or your phone app or whatever you've got. What was the thing that stood out to me in chapter one? Well, Perhaps the most notable thing that happens is Jesus ascends to heaven in chapter 1. So he has died and he was resurrected and for 40 days he has been appearing to people over that 40 day period, including on one occasion a crowd of up to 500 people. So Jesus has been appearing but now in chapter 1 he then ascends back to heaven. But he gives an instruction to his disciples before he goes and he says there in chapter 1, you are to be my witnesses, in other words you are to witness to who I am and my message You are to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, i.e. where they live, to Judea, which is the area just around Jerusalem, to Samaria, which is a bit further north, a place I didn't really want to go. And actually, Jesus says, even to the very ends of the earth, I want you to be my witnesses. Jesus is saying, you've got some work to do. That's a big, big ask, isn't it? That is a big ask. Now, on a Sunday, when a lot of us are not working for a living, you probably don't want someone saying, you've got some work to do. But we have got work to do. There is a mission to do here. God asks his people to be his witnesses right to the very, very ends of the earth. Okay? What's interesting about chapter 1 as well is that Jesus, he then ascends, and one of the angels who's there says to the people looking on, he's coming back the same way. He's ascended, but actually he's coming back the same way. Now that might, to those apostles, and actually it might to us as well, lead us to be a little bit passive. You could, when hearing that Jesus is coming back, and you've got that security of, that certainty of it, you could think, well, I can just sort of look after my own affairs, do my best, I've got that certainty of his return, and actually if I die first, well, I've got that promise of heaven. So there is a danger that you can become passive when you know that Jesus is coming back. But actually, Jesus has just said that very moment just before, you've got some work to do. Jesus doesn't want us to be passive. He has given us work to do. And so that's what I want to emphasise to us today. We are caught up in a mission. This is not just a history book. Okay, it is history, but it's history, and I think it should have an asterisk next to it which says, read, and I think it's chapter 2, verse 39, where it says, this promise of the Holy Spirit is not just for you and your children, like the disciples and the children, 
but for all who God would call off, those who are even far away. This is a promise for us as well. We are to step into this story and to carry on with this mission that Jesus has asked his people to do. We are to be his witnesses. Now, what's the first thing in chapter 1 that the disciples then do? Okay, so they, they go back to Jerusalem. They go upstairs. They gather in an upstairs room. And what do they do? You might think now is a good time to start strategizing. You might think, we've just been told we're going to the ends of the earth. Has anyone got a boat? You know, they're fishermen, they've got good contacts, they can get a boat. They might start to think that way. We might start to think that way when God asks us to go and do something. But actually, what is the first thing that they do? They're obedient to Jesus and they wait for his spirit, as he asked them to do. And what do they do? They pray. So what you'll see in chapter 1, that is the first thing they do, they pray. Okay, now that is a challenge to us. And I want to ask a pointed question, you know, we're friends, don't take this the wrong way, but I want to ask you a tough question Do you pray enough? Do you pray enough? Do you take seriously prayer in your life? Do you pray enough? If you want to be effective in God's um, challenge for you, his commission to you to be his witnesses, if you want to be effective at that, you have to be someone who prays. You cannot read the book of Acts and get to a conclusion and think, Prayer is kind of an optional. Prayer is a peripheral thing. Prayer is something that helps me. Prayer is essential. The disciples did it. It was the first thing that they did as Jesus commissioned them to this great task. They prayed. Prayer is sometimes described as like the engine room for mission. And that's what you see in this book. You cannot get away from the need to pray. And so as gently but as firmly as I can, I want to ask you, do you pray enough? How important is prayer for you? Okay, so that's chapter 1. The thing that stood out to me in chapter 2, well, it's, again, many, maybe fairly obvious. In chapter 2, we see Pentecost. Now, if you've been coming to church for any length of time, if you're a Christian of a number of years, you'll probably be familiar with what that day was, what Pentecost is. It is the day when Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit to all his followers. And in doing so, he fulfills a prophecy from the Old Testament, the prophet Joel. He's also fulfilling actually something he's just said 10 days before, which is to his disciples, I'm going to give you my spirit. So this Holy Spirit is given to his people on that day. (laughs) Ah, let's all look at the very cute dog. Um, That day was the day of Pentecost, but that Pentecost was the festival that was happening on that day, and that was when God poured out his spirit to his disciples. Why didn't God do it three weeks later? Why didn't he do it two days earlier? Why didn't he do it five months later? God chose to do this, to fulfill these prophecies on that day. And I don't believe it's a coincidence. So what is it about the festival of Pentecost that led God to do it on that day, which would help the disciples, and hopefully you and me today, get an an additional understanding and appreciation of what the Holy Spirit is for? If we understand something of that festival, we... I hope we'll see something of the purposes of the Holy Spirit that we may have otherwise missed if God had done it three weeks later. Okay, so that's where we're going to go. What was the festival of Pentecost and why is it important? Well, actually, Pentecost, as the name might sort of hint to, is 50 days, hence pent, 50 days after the festival of the Passover. So you've got two really important festivals for the Jewish people. There was Passover, and then 50 days later you had Pentecost. Okay, so we'll look very briefly at each in turn. Passover dated all the way back to when Moses brought God's people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. 
And how did it happen? Well, Pharaoh had hardened his heart to all of the different plagues that had come upon him and his people. But eventually, he lets the people go. And he does it because God says and, and warns that an angel will come. An angel of God comes and he goes through the Israelite camps. He also goes through the Egyptians' households. Now, the Israelites had given advance notice of this, and they were told, what you need to do is you need to get some lamb's blood, to sacrifice a lamb, and paint the blood on the doorposts. And when the angel of God will come, he will see that blood and know that a sacrifice has been made, and he will pass over you. No judgment will fall upon this household because of the lamb's blood. So the Israelites were saved, but the Egyptians, who didn't have that saving sacrifice, weren't saved, and the eldest, the, eld, um, the eldest boys in each of those homes were slaughtered. That is what ultimately led Pharaoh to say, OK, you can go. And so from that moment onwards, every year, the Israelite people would remember that deliverance and have the Passover festival. OK, I hope you're still with me. That's what the Passover was. Fifty days after those Israelites left um, Egypt, they were in the wilderness. I don't know if you knew this. It was exactly 50 days later that Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. So it's 50 days apart. And it's that occasion then that they remember through Pentecost. Okay, I hope you're still with me. You've got Passover. 50 days later, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. Why is that something that they then remember every year afterwards? Well, what they're remembering is that God has said to them through the giving of the law, you are now to be set apart and you are to live differently. And this is how I want you to live. If you want to live righteously and be my holy people, you were previously in slavery, but now you are to be set apart, and here is my way that you are to live. Okay, so then every year after that, through Pentecost, the Israelite people would be remembering, ah, God gave us the law. He has called us to be different. He has called us to be holy and to live a different way from any other people in this planet. Okay, so knowing that... Let's fast forward again to Acts chapter 2. God pours his Holy Spirit on that festival to all the people. What's he saying? He's saying there is a new way to live. You are now to live by my Holy Spirit. He is to come in you where previously you lived by tablets written on stone. He is now to come in you and live in your heart and write his law in your heart. It is a new way to live. So the disciples would have understood this isn't just about some refreshment. This isn't just about some miracles as welcome as those are. This is about a new way to live. I've got to live by the Holy Spirit. And that's the same thing for us today. We have got to live every day, every moment through the power of the Holy Spirit if we want to be effective witnesses for Christ. That's what he's called us to do, remember. That is the job description. Be his witnesses. You can only do it with the Holy Spirit. You need him to come into your heart to enable you to live differently from anyone else on this planet, to be a witness for him. Okay, so that's what Pentecost was, and hopefully it will help you understand something of the purposes of the Holy Spirit. But there's another thing about Pentecost. It was a festival where they would give the first fruits of that season to God. The people are like the first fruits or the crops. What they're doing is they are giving the very first fruit and the first crop and they're saying in that, Lord, we trust you to provide the rest of the fruit. Okay, we're going to give you the first and we're doing it and we're making a statement that, God, you are trustworthy in providing the rest for that season and then every year they would go through this festival. Knowing that, fast forward to Acts chapter 2, what does that say about the Holy Spirit? the disciples would have understood what we are seeing today is just the first fruits. And we can trust his Holy Spirit to provide all of the rest. 
So you might get to the end of chapter 2 and see 3,000 people saved and think, wow, that's amazing, and it was. But those disciples were about to go on a very, very tough journey, and they needed reassurance. This is just the first fruits. It doesn't stop here. You can trust him for all of the rest. Okay, so as you look around this church today, some of you have been coming almost from the very start, perhaps the very start. Some of you are visiting for the first time today. Is this church everything we would hope it would be? Do we have the full fruit that we would hope? No, we don't. But we can trust him. If we are a church that pursues the Holy Spirit, we can trust that what we are seeing is just the first fruits. That he is not short. He is abundant. And he can provide all that is to follow. Our responsibility to desire him and pursue the Holy Spirit and to be a church that does. Pause. Sorry, I got a bit, got a bit into that. Right, chapter three. Let's take, let's take a sip of water. My mouth is getting a bit dry. Okay, right, chapter three. What stood out to me in chapter three? Chapter three, there is a healing. It's the first healing in the book of Acts. Okay? We're aware that there were lots of healings in the gospel accounts. This is the first healing in the book of Acts. It's a really interesting healing, I think. What happens is there is, a, there is a cripple. He is begging outside the temple in Jerusalem. It says in chapter 3 he's been um, like this from birth, so we assume many decades. He's been there every day begging for money, and he's healed. So he is the man that is healed. But what's interesting is he doesn't actually have faith for healing. If you read it, you'll see he just asks for some money, like he does every day. He doesn't say, can you heal me? He says, can I have some money? And the, the famous response from Peter and John is, We don't have money, but what we do have, we give you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, get up and walk. And he jumps up. He's leaping around praising God. It's interesting because he didn't have faith for healing. The faith was on the part of those disciples. It's also interesting that Jesus didn't heal that man. Now, remember, he'd been begging there for his whole life. Jesus, just a few weeks earlier, was walking in and out of Jerusalem, would almost certainly have walked past this man. But God chose to heal him on that day even though he didn't actually have faith for healing. Why would God do that? I believe it's for what happens immediately afterwards. A crowd gathers. Of course a crowd gathers. This is incredible. These people, this crowd of people know who he is. They gather around. God, I believe, is using this miracle to draw a crowd. Why? Because Peter, he then seizes the opportunity to preach to the crowd. God wants this message getting out there. He draws a crowd, and Peter, what does he do? He he seizes that opportunity and he preaches the gospel. And it's a challenge for us as a church. When we draw a crowd, when we do mission-type events and we draw a crowd, we must preach the gospel. We must preach it. You know, I went to the Cap Magic Show during the summer. Maybe a few of us were also there. I absolutely loved it. There was a Christian magician. So that's the charity Christians Against Poverty. It was brilliant. There was a Christian magician who was unbelievably good at magic and he drew a crowd. His magic drew a crowd, but what he didn't do, which sadly I do see sometimes, he didn't, when the crowd was there, say, by the way, we're nice Christians, if you'd like to get, us, get to know us, you can come back, you know, maybe, you, know, you know, come back next week to church, find out a bit more. He didn't do that. He drew a crowd, and he preached the gospel. There was a crowd there, and he said, I'm going to preach the gospel, so he did. And people prayed out prayers of salvation that day. When a crowd gathers, let's be like Peter, and be people who are bold to say, This is the gospel, even if it's unpopular to many who would hear it. 
Okay, you'll be pleased to know I'm not going to spend as much time on the, all of these chapters. But these are some of the things that stood out to me. Chapters 4 and 5, we begin to see the beginnings of the opposition building against what these disciples are doing, what they're saying. You start to see from this point onwards the opposition really starting to ramp up. At the beginning of chapter 4, Peter, um, I think it's in John, yeah, Peter and John, they are placed overnight in prison, and then the next day they're brought out of the the cells and taken to the religious people, the, the high priest and his family, to give an explanation, really, and to kind of explain themselves and to face a bit of wrath for what is going on here. So these religious people, they're, they're seeing the threats of this message of Jesus. They don't like it. And yet they're in a quandary. Do you see later in the chapter? They're in a quandary because they cannot deny that this man was healed. So this crippled man who is now healed is still on the scene. They cannot deny it. And yet they want to try and shush and quieten down this kind of annoyance as they will see it. Gradually it becomes more than just an annoyance. They want to keep it quiet and opposition begins. Now, what's interesting is that actually when they go through this quandary and they realise that actually there is a healed man, how are they going to explain? Basically, where they end up is this. They say, what you need to do is go away and stop using the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus that ultimately they wanted to quieten down. There is power in the name of Jesus. I don't know if they knew that particularly, but kind of almost at the cat out of the bag, it is through the name of Jesus that actually this message has power. And so they tried to say to the disciples, stop using that name. Don't use that name anymore. So you see that, um, I think it's in verse 17, they forbid that they would use that name anymore. You know, the apostles basically say, we can't do it. You're asking us something we can't do. We are not going to. We can't stop ourselves from explaining this message of Jesus. Why? Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of chapter 4, you see that Peter, when speaking, he is filled again with the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder that the Holy Spirit isn't something we just kind of go to on tap. He is someone to live and work through us so that every day in every encounter, we are being led by him. And Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, starts to give his position. I can't do what you're asking me to do, and I won't do it. I'm not going to quieten down on the name of Jesus. I don't know if you feel this. I certainly feel this. In our society today, I think you can talk fairly publicly about God or about spiritual things like that. And by and large, people are kind of, yeah, okay. You bring the name of Jesus, there's a reaction. I don't know if you notice it. I notice it, and I feel increasingly so. You bring the name of Jesus, oh, no, don't go there. The gods, gods, I can, yeah, okay, Jesus. No, because suddenly you're getting quite specific with people. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. He is the only name that matters. You start speaking it like that, like Peter and the others did. You start to get opposition. You get a reaction. It tells you everything you need to know. There is power in the name of Jesus. Let's not be afraid to speak out his name. One of the things that's interesting about this whole account, again, adding to this quandary that these people have in chapter 4, is that they actually recognise that Peter and John and the others have been in the presence of Jesus. That's interesting. I don't think what they mean is they have heard that months and months earlier, before Jesus went to the cross, they were with him. I think what they mean is there is something in them now, and I can tell they've been with Jesus. And of course. Why? Because they have his Holy Spirit in them. They are people who you'll see in those early chapters are devoting themselves to prayer, the teaching of the word, to seeking after the Holy Spirit. Of course they've been close to Jesus. It kind of rubs off on them. 
I would love to be in a situation where people who don't even believe in Jesus can see him in me. And we only get that by spending time with him. Okay? Peter and the others, they did spend time with Jesus. They devoted themselves every day to prayer, to communion with him, to teaching his word. You spend time with Jesus enough and he will start to rub off on you and it will come out. So again, another potentially challenging question today, how much time do you spend every day with Jesus? Does he fit in with your other agenda or is he number one on your daily routine? I've heard someone say, don't give Jesus what is left, give him what is right. Don't just see what time you've got left in your day for Jesus. Spend time with him and prioritise him if you want to be an effective witness. If you want to be an effective witness, you have to spend time with him. You have to allow him to rub off and actually shine out of you that other people would see, these people have been with Jesus, there's something different here. I just want to say on that whole topic of it being the name of Jesus and his name only, there is a verse in this chapter which I definitely don't want us to overlook. It's verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. I want to just make it as clear. I hope I've been really clear that this is about Jesus, but in case there is any doubt, read verse 12 of chapter 4. There is no other name under heaven given to man by which you must be saved. Notice it doesn't say which you can be saved, should be saved, must be saved. I'm telling you all, I don't know everyone in this room, you need saving. And there's only one name by whom you can be saved. And it's the name of Jesus. The persecution increases. When we get into chapter 5, we see an, an interesting story, a powerful story about Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira, I never know how to pronounce Sapphira, Sapphira. Steve spoke on that um, a few weeks ago. I listened to the recording. It was brilliant. I re- encourage you to, to listen to that recording on the website. I know Matt spoke after that as well on, on some of the events in Chapter 5. Sadly, I haven't heard Matt's talk. I'm sure it was equally brilliant. It was. Towards, um, exactly. <laughs> Phil says it was. And Phil, you're a very good judge of talks, I think. So. Um, high praise. Anyway, so towards the end of Chapter 5, we've been through those kind of interesting stories which you can speak to Matt about, or you can listen to the audio of Steve. And then we get to this increased opposition again. It is building, and it's building, and it's building. And I did promise we would look briefly at chapter 6 as we kind of, end, kind of come towards the end. So if you've got chapter 6 in front of you, please, please look with me at, chap- at verses 8 to the end of the chapter. Remember the context. This opposition is increasing. So I'll read from verse 8 onwards. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against his holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face 
was like the face of an angel. Just two brief things I want to say from these verses. Firstly, it's interesting that it is Stephen who is actually causing them, or is causing this particular opposition. Why is that interesting? Previous section, Stephen is appointed to be someone who looks after the tables and the widows. You might remember that story. It doesn't exclude him from his call to be a witness to Jesus Christ. Don't think that you can't speak out and shouldn't speak out this message of Jesus just because you do the equivalent, in inverted commas, of tables and looking after widows. Those roles are hugely important in the church. It doesn't exclude you, if you do one of those things, from preaching out the name of Jesus. That is something we've all got to be doing. And Stephen did it. And actually the wisdom with which he spoke, the Holy Spirit's wisdom speaking through him, basically completely bamboozled these people. They couldn't overcome the wisdom with which he spoke. It's interesting. And so what they do, they try obviously to reason and argue. They realise they can't actually overcome this wisdom. So what's next? They start throwing mud and slander. Same thing that happens today. Eventually it will result in violence, actually. Kind of the same pattern happens. What's the thing that they're really getting at? Well, they say it's because Stephen is, and they sort of manipulate, I guess, what he had actually been saying to kind of allude to the fact that he was blaspheming against Moses and against the law. What's interesting at the very end of that account is what then happens to to Stephen. His face is shining like an angel. Why do I draw those two, two things together? Because actually it's when Moses gave the law to the people of God in the first place, that day when he came down from the mountain, what does Exodus say? It says he had the appearance of like an angel. His face was glowing. And here Stephen, the one they are accusing of undermining Moses, actually God makes his face shine. God is honouring Stephen because Stephen honoured God. And so for us today, as we hope take on the seriousness of this mission to be witnesses for Jesus in this world... And as we face the opposition that I believe is inevitable, if we are faithful in it, God will honour that. One of my favourite verses is where God says... I don't even know if it's from which I should do, given it's one of my favourites. But one of my favourite verses is where God says, those who honour me, I will honour. And it's the verse that is used in the film Chariots of Fire, and it's one of my favourite scenes in any film. If you are going to honour God... And if you're going to be someone who seeks to be faithful to the Holy Spirit as he leads you, to be obedient to whatever he asks you, even if it means going to the ends of the earth with this message, if you're going to be faithful when opposition comes, he will honour you in it. He will honour in it. Will it spare your life? I don't know. Let's see what happens next week. We know what happens to Stephen. It doesn't guarantee that God will keep you safe, but he will honour you when you are faithful and obedient for him in this message. And so... Look at that, we're bang on midday. Um, amazing. So those are points that stood out to me in this series. We're going to continue with it next week. I hope you've caught something of the, the excitement I have for this mission, the seriousness of it, and the absolute necessity to have the Holy Spirit leading us as we go about this mission that Jesus has called us to. We're going to end there. So we're going to pause there, we're going to move on with our days and we're going to have a good time together but if anything of what I've said challenges you today if you don't know who Jesus is especially come and find me I'm just going to be sitting around here somewhere for a little while come and speak to me come and chat come and pray I would love to pray with you and to chat with you some more um, oh, Phil's motioning I think Phil wants to come up and say something so do we believe the Holy Spirit has been on Peter this morning yes, yes we do so, Peter, I want to just ask you, really, as you prepared this and as you've just preached it, 
What do you feel the Holy Spirit is saying to you about what, what he wants to do in these people? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> you know what? what? We can trust God for the fruit that he is going to give us. Paul says that he plants, Apollos waters, but God makes it grow. I don't know what the fruit is going to look like for us as a church. I don't exactly know what it's going to look like in a year's time or ten years' time. But I do know that he is the one who makes the fruit grow. And we can trust him to do whatever he wishes to do. Our responsibility is to be faithful and obedient as he asks us to be. I don't know if that answers your question. So I want you now to pray that for these people. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They will trust, Why don't they we all will stand be obedient, as we, as we close and the Holy prayer. Spirit will come on them. Yeah. Oh, dear Lord, we are we're so humbled that you would draw us into your story. That you would call us to be witnesses to... Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Brixton, South London, Greater London, the ends of the earth. We are so humbled that you would call us into this mission. We want to take it seriously. And Holy Spirit, we know that we cannot do it without you. And so Holy Spirit, I ask, would you come again and rest upon every single one of us in this room who has signed up to this mission? Will you come and help us to be effective witnesses for Christ? Help us not be hypocritical, Lord. Help us not to say something today, but then go on with our life as though we are a different person. Holy Spirit, will you come and bring change in our characters, change in our, um, in our daily lives that would demonstrate something to the people around us that we have been born by the Spirit, and so we are going to keep in step with your Holy Spirit, yes. that we are the image bearers of Christ, yes. that this message is true, and that this message is essential, that there is no other name given by whom we must be saved. Holy Spirit, will you come and do that work in yes. us, I pray. I pray this in the name of your Son. The Lord Jesus. Amen. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.